Hello and welcome to Z3 News. I'm James Bailey and today is Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. And today I'm sharing part four of this series that I'm calling All That I Have Is Yours. So if you didn't hear the first three parts, I highly recommend going back and listening to those and then come back here and pick it up right here. But I came up with that title based on the parable of the prodigal son, and it's a direct quote from the father of the prodigal son spoken to his older brother who had gotten offended by the actions of his father, thinking that he was not being treated fairly, and so his father had to give him some insight into what he was truly all about, what was his heart toward his son, and he says to him, all that I have is yours. And I believe this is a huge point that if we can get revelation on what God is revealing in these words to us, then we can begin to grow in our faith and advance in the kingdom of God so much faster because we don't get bogged down. We don't get stuck in a rut thinking wrong thoughts, falsely accusing our father all because we don't understand who he really is and what he's really all about. And after digging into this topic more, I've seen that it wasn't just the older brother of the prodigal son, but also Jesus' disciples. They struggled with this same idea. They didn't really understand, even though they walked with him, they talked with him, they ministered with him, they lived with him for three years, but even after seeing all of the miracles and all of the amazing words that he taught with such authority, and even hearing him tell them directly who he was, they still didn't catch on. They didn't understand. And again and again, we see evidence of their lack of understanding for example, in Mark chapter 4, they were on a boat on the sea with Jesus. Jesus was asleep in the boat, and a great storm arose, and it caused so much water to pour into the boat that the water was coming in faster than they could bail it out. And so they became fearful, and they were concerned for their very lives. And one of them woke up Jesus and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? that we are perishing? And that is a loaded question. In other words, he didn't just say, Jesus, could you please wake up and help us with this situation? No, he had to take a jab. He had to say, do you not care that we're perishing? And so that shows his lack of understanding of who Jesus is, but also a lack of understanding of what Jesus had already done in their behalf. Because why in the world, if they understood who he really was, they would have known that God Almighty was in the boat with them. Why on earth would you be fearful of a storm if you knew that God Almighty was in the boat with you? They had been given so much information about him they had watched with their own eyes as he performed miracle after miracle, healing the sick, opening the blind eyes, 
casting out devils. Not only that, but if you just back up one chapter to Mark chapter 3, he commissioned the 12 disciples to go out doing the very same things that he was doing, preaching the good news, healing the sick, and casting out demons. Now, obviously, he would never have sent them out to do that if he had not already equipped them to be able to do it. And so they could have just considered what he had already done. And if they did, they would know better than to falsely accuse him of not caring and not doing anything for them. And they would also know that he had given them authority so that they were not helpless. They could have taken authority over the storm. They could have begun to exercise their faith and do the very same kinds of things. And that's the reason why after Jesus woke up, he rebuked them. He said, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now, surely he would never say such things if there was nothing they could do, if they truly were helpless, if everything was out of their hands and it was all left up to God to do something. But that was not the case. They had been well equipped. They should have known better. And even if you take away all that they had seen by their own first-hand eyewitness accounts of being with him, they could have identified him in the scriptures because It's written in the Old Testament. Now, they didn't have the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet at that point, but they had the Old Testament, and they would come together in their synagogue meetings, and these were devout Jews. They would attend synagogue meetings. They would listen as the scrolls of the Scriptures were read aloud for everyone to hear and be taught the Word of God, and surely they would have known very well about the book of Isaiah one of the major prophets in all the Old Testament. And so they would have heard the prophecies about Jesus who was to come. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there is a prophecy about Jesus saying, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. So if only they had believed what was already told about him, and just two chapters later, Isaiah prophesied more about him, saying, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So just by those names that Isaiah listed, we can learn so much about him that he, Jesus, the Son of God, is also called Mighty God. And he's called the Everlasting Father. Now that might sound confusing because we know, and he said, he is the Son of God, but he also is called the Everlasting Father. And that seems like a contradiction, But yet, we know it's not because many other scriptures confirm. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 9, his disciple Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And so we see these examples of where the disciples were not putting it all together. They were slow to understand, and I can understand that because I've been there myself. But the good news is we don't have to stay there. If we just study the scriptures, just like they could have done, we can know who is this one who's been given to us. You know, we can all thank God because we have received eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins, and that is awesome. What a great thing to have received that. But there's so much more that we don't want to get to heaven and look back at our life and see all that it could have been if only we would have known who is this one who was riding in the boat with us. Because as I've dug into this topic, I've found many scriptures showing again and again that this one whom we have received living on the inside of us is so much bigger than what I had been previously thinking about because I was making that same mistake the disciples were making. You know, you think about it from a natural perspective and you say, well, he's the son of God, therefore he must be a notch down from the Father. And wouldn't it be great if we just had the fullness of the Father, but yet he's given us this uh, lower class God is what it sounds like when you say Son of God, but when we put it together with all the other scriptures, we see a completely different picture that this one that we have received is, in fact, the fullness of God. And that point is made very clear in many scriptures, which I'm going to be sharing here in just a minute. But I just want to point out that that is so huge to me personally because I like knowing that when I'm in the middle of a great storm and there's more water pouring into the boat than I can possibly bail out fast enough to keep it from sinking. Well, I like knowing that the one in the boat with me is truly the fullness of God, God Almighty. And that's exactly what Jesus called himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So that's what Jesus called himself. He is the Almighty. So whatever ideas that we've had, about him being called the Son of God and somehow getting it in our head that we have some kind of an inferior God, that the real help that we need is far away from us up in heaven. And what we have here on the inside of us is something less that might not be big enough to do what we need to do. And so I want to get that thinking as far away from me as I can. And that's the reason why I've taken the time to dig into the scriptures to see everything I could find about who is this one. And I found in Hebrews chapter 1 that it was through him that the worlds were created. And even to this very day, it is him. It is Jesus 
who is upholding all things by the word of his power. So the truth is, our heavenly Father did not shortchange us. He did not withhold from us anything. But when he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, he gave us all that he had. And that's the reason why in John chapter 3, verse 34 through 35, it says that God did not give him the Spirit by measure. It says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And Jesus confirmed that again in John sixteen fifteen, saying all things that the Father has are mine. And that's the reason why Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 19, that it pleased the Father, that in Him all the fullness should dwell. And then again in Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So all of that is great news, but that's only half the story. Because when we received Jesus Christ living on the inside of us, Everyone who has received him has been given all of him. And so just as he has been given all things by his father, we have been given all things when we received him. And that's the reason why in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, it says his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did you notice that's written in the past tense? His divine power has already given to us all things that we would ever need that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I looked up that word life in the original Greek language. It's a word Z-O-E, Zoe, and it's translated there with just that one word life, but the fuller definition is it's the absolute fullness of life. Nothing at all has been withheld from us. God has given us all things that pertain to the absolute fullness of life. And it doesn't stop there, but he's given us all things that pertain to godliness so that we have been fully equipped with everything we'll ever need to walk with him in an upright relationship, pursuing righteousness, and living with him all the days of our life on this earth and then on into eternity. And the same point is repeated, confirmed again in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And once again, we see it is written in the past tense. We've already, God the Father has already given us every spiritual blessing. And again, the same point is confirmed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, where it says that we have received, past tense, not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. 
And so that's just more good news because it's showing that we have been given His Spirit, His Holy Spirit living in us, and His Spirit helps us to comprehend and to know what has been freely given to us by God. And again, it's confirmed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is, already is, a new creation. Old things have passed away, past tense. Old things have already passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so, again, the point is, we are not waiting for the Lord to do anything for us because He has already done it all and given it freely to us. And now it is up to us to take possession of what He has given because just like salvation has come upon the whole world and Jesus gave His life for the sins of the whole world just as John the Baptist called Him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, yet we see today that many people around the world don't believe in Jesus, that they don't receive Jesus as their Lord, and they go to their grave without Him. They didn't have to because the price had already been paid, the gift had already been given, but yet it was not received. And in the same way, everything that God has done for us, we can begin to take possession of all of it the same way we took possession of our salvation. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, being rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so there it's telling us that everything that we receive from God comes the same way, the same way that we came to Him when we received salvation. And I believe the important point there is that no one, none of us, got saved automatically. We, we didn't get saved just because we were born into a Christian family or we were born into a Christian nation. No, none of it happened automatically. We had to make a choice to receive, to believe, and to exercise our faith by confessing out of our mouth that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And I am convinced that many people have missed eternal life because they're sitting around waiting, thinking that it's up to God to someday do something to bring salvation to them because they don't understand He's already done all that He's ever going to need to do to save the whole world. The rest is up to us to take possession to receive it by faith. And so today, I want to conclude the program by sharing with you some thoughts, some scriptures regarding receiving from God. And I'm going to let that be the final segment of this series. When I first started it, I wasn't sure how long I would go with it. I was thinking I might go further with it and talk about applying it to different areas of our life and all of that. But I've really, over the past few weeks, sensed that it's time for me to get back to my primary mission, which I believe God has given me, which is revealing, exposing, 
the truth about Mystery Babylon. And so I believe it's time for me to shift gears, shift my focus back onto that topic and bring this little series to a conclusion today. And since we're talking about the fullness of God in Jesus, I want to share this scripture passage that I found recently regarding the seven spirits of God. And you know, seven is a number that represents completion, perfection, and fullness. And so when we're talking about the seven spirits of God, which is revealed in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, and Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it talks about these seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne of God, which are the seven spirits of God. And we can get some more insights into what is this seven spirits of God in Revelation 5, verse 6. It says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so, when we talk about Jesus operating in the fullness of God, that means He operated in all of the seven spirits of God, which are also listed in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And there's a passage there, verses 1 through 5, that is a prophecy. It's another prophecy of Jesus saying, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, the father of David, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So there's the first spirit. It's the Spirit of the Lord. Then the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And then in verse 3, I believe it gives the key, saying, His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And the rest of that passage goes on to talk about how he operates in righteousness, how righteousness is a belt around his loins. And so when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about the pursuit of righteousness. And we have other scriptures in Proverbs telling us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. And so there in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, when it says his delight is in the fear of the Lord, I'm sharing that with you today because I believe that is the key point to receiving all that God has for us. That if we would begin to give our full attention, our full focused, undivided attention to walking uprightly before Him in all that we say and do and think, that in everything we do, we make it our top priority to be pleasing to Him. That is how we walk in the fear of the Lord. And what this passage in Isaiah is revealing, as confirmed by many other scriptures, is that the key to unlocking, the key to receiving all of the seven spirits of God not just the Spirit of the Lord, which He has promised He will never leave us or forsake us, so we have the Spirit of the Lord, but we need to go on from there 
and receive the spirit of wisdom. That's number two, the spirit of understanding. That's number three, the spirit of counsel. That's number four, the spirit of might. That's the power of God that performs miraculous healings, supernatural power. Next is the spirit of knowledge, and I touched on that briefly. According to 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, we have been given an anointing, the anointing of the Holy One, and we know all things, not in the natural, not natural kind of knowledge, but by the Spirit, the Spirit of knowledge in us. And then the final one is the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And it says that his delight was in the fear of the Lord because he understood that if he would pursue that, that all these other things would be added to him, just exactly what it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that if we would seek first the kingdom of God coming under his rule, under his dominion, and his righteousness, seeking to be right with him, that is the key that unlocks, because the next part of that verse in Matthew six thirty-three says, all these things will be added to you. In other words, you will receive what has been given. You will uh, begin to see the manifestation of what has already been given. But just because it's been given doesn't mean that we're seeing it manifest in this physical realm. We need to see the full manifestation. And so I really like this whole teaching on the seven spirits of God especially the way it keeps it so simple that our focus, our attention can be given to delighting ourselves in the fear of the Lord, which is not to say that we're afraid of Him, but we're afraid of being separated from Him. We want to be as close to Him as we can possibly be, and so we don't want to stop with just knowing all of the great things that God has given us, but we want to press in to receive them and know how to do that. And God has given us this simple plan for receiving all that he has. All right, well, I'm going to stop there, and I appreciate you joining me for this little series, and I hope it's been a help to you. And I'll be back again soon with more regarding Mystery Babylon. 